What I've really loved and probably the most special moments I've created in events have been moments of connection and events that really feel like they're part of the, or they're intrinsically part of the DNA of that place and creating those really rich experiences that, like I said before, I suppose that, that you walk away feeling like you've had this moment. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Over the last year, we've detailed the impact of the pandemic on the food industry. Hospitality is all about connection, whether over a coffee, a four-course meal, or at an event celebrating an array of producers. With restrictions on events and large gatherings over the last year, what form will food events take as society starts to open up again? Christy Austin is the Managing Director of We Are Neighbourgood. Christy, how are you going? Hey, Anthony. Well, thanks. Thanks for having me. Well, it's good to talk to you. You've had a pretty interesting year. We've talked to many operators and chefs and restaurateurs and sommeliers about the impact on the restaurant industry. Uh, you're in the events game. What, what sort of impact and changes have you had over the last year because of what's happened? Yeah, it's um, it's been a really challenging one, I think, like most people. Um I kind of started last year with, um, you know, six to eight months worth of work that was locked in um, from kind of January. I was currently, I was working on a weirdly kind of an event that I don't normally do a sports event, which is not my, not my field of work, but I was um, working on that. And um, funny enough, it was actually for Bloomberg uh, out of the States and it was a running event. And um, yeah, it was a very very strange we kind of went into that not obviously knowing what was going to happen and then we kind of got wind actually almost before it really happened here because of um, I guess having a bit more of a connection into Bloomberg and into the states of just what was starting to unravel I suppose um, Mm. overseas and there was real hesitation from them around continuing with the event which we were you know, um, I guess with only the knowledge that we had, we're kind of thinking it was a bit crazy and, you know, they were wanting people in full um, uh, suits with with gloves and, and sanitizer and all of this to be at the events. And, uh, and then very quickly from there, it was, oh, no, there's something happening and no, we're going to cancel. And that was kind of about five weeks before I even had kind of come here at all. Um And that's when it just started to really implode, I suppose, of just really starting to see, you know, um, events slipping away, work slipping away, and pretty much my calendar got wiped in about two weeks. Um, Wow. Yeah. So it was a a really – it was a kind of a strange time of just – it all happened so fast, I think. It just – you didn't even really have time to digest it. Um, And then I just remember talking to my partner about it and just saying – feeling incredibly uneasy but also just I suppose being in the nature of the events in the industry you just run at such a fast pace and actually having downtime is quite unusual and a chance to breathe and I think it was kind of that coupled with the fact that there was no work on the table it was it was a yeah it was a very challenging time and and I think it's it took me a while to actually just sit in it and be okay with it and you know thank god for JobKeeper because I'm 
bloody wouldn't be here without it. But I think, um, yeah, it was having to just kind of take that on board and realise that I actually had no idea when it was going to come back in any in any form. Um, you know, when you kind of talk with colleagues and mates and things that are in the industry and no one knew. So it was just, I guess, a time of reflection, a time to kind of take a step back and be okay with waking up and having absolutely nothing to do, <laughs> which was very <laughs> weird. Um, and then I suppose kind of coming out of that after feeling a bit sad and sorry for myself um, and being a bit selfish, I suppose, about it. Um, then kind of, I guess, stepping out of that and just going, okay, well, what are the things that maybe I can kind of do with my time now that I'm literally sitting here twiddling my thumbs? Um, so, you know, I suppose like most people, it started out a bit shit, but I guess it kind of came to, there was some light that I found, you know, in and around it that I guess has led me to where I am now. Um, yeah, which is, which I guess is, is good. <laughs> how do you, how do you navigate the sort of landscape that, that we've been in the last year as an, as a, an event organizer where sort of large gatherings, you know, weren't allowed. Um, and then when they are, there are restrictions. What, what sort of changed in regards to events for you? Yeah, I guess for me, maybe it's my kind of stubbornness, I suppose, and my, um, what I really, why I love events and why I even got into the industry, I suppose, is that opportunity for connection with community and, and place and people um, and providing something, I suppose, that maybe has never been experienced before or creating moments that people cherish and take away with them um, and creating some kind of impact and I think with COVID, it obviously made it incredibly hard to do any of that. Um, so I think, you know, for a lot of people within the industry, you know, they, you know, pivoted <laughs> um, and did things that were a bit more of an online piece, you know, whether that was, I know, you know, quite a few podcasts started that were for the events industry, which is kind of talking, I guess, sharing knowledge and talking about everybody's struggles there was a few online events that I kind of participated in of, um, you know, whether that was kind of getting a bunch of people on a panel to to kind of, um, I guess, talk about key, key industry pieces or, or it might be um, key topics or, or you know, um, getting those kind of people in a room in a bit more of an online format. But for me, I guess I really struggled with all of that because, you know, I just, it's not really my forte. It's not it's not how um, how I've really why I've wanted to be in events and the kind of the all the reasons I just gave. So I I found it really quite challenging to just kind of come into this world of going okay, well this is kind of now where we need to sit. And mm. you know I'm I'm so for so many of my peers that took that leap and had to change their business completely because they literally were going to go under um, and took that leap to to really. Um, turn upside down and go, okay, well, you know, what can we kind of provide for, for people that is, you know, still some kind of form of interaction while people are sitting at home and, and you know, feeling a bit flat. Um, and there was some incredible things, you know, like you look at Melbourne um, Food and Wine Festival. I mean, they were four days out from 
launching their event and they literally had to turn it completely all online. Mm. So with that, obviously, a lot of live events got got cancelled, but Pat Nurse and the team there did an incredible job of, you know, creating these kind of moments that I suppose the silver lining is that, you know, some of those moments in that festival are some of the most brilliant moments I've kind of taken away um, where they were able to, I suppose, harness a bit more of an international, not only awareness, but even from a talent chef pool perspective where, you know, they had Mara Colligreco on and he walked them through his incredible garden and you got to see kind of firsthand where he lived and where he worked and how he worked. And they did the same with Rene Redzepi. And so there was kind of these really beautiful moments that you just, you don't get at live events. You know, that person comes out, they cook at the event, which is incredible. You might hear them speak, but to actually see them in their own environment and talking so passionately about what they do, um, even with the kind of, you know, the shitty reception and everything, it all kind of added to it. So I guess... You know, in some ways, I, I steer away from, you know, from what I do, I suppose I, I didn't really delve into that world. But in terms mm. of interacting with how other people did it, I think there was still really beautiful moments that you could you could take and, and take away from that. And it didn't kind of, I guess, um, make make you feel like you were getting a second best um, uh, event experience. You've been behind some of the biggest food festivals in Australia, like Taste Festivals and Margaret River Gourmet Escape, and also uh, one that's on this weekend that we can talk about later. Uh, what, what does it take to create a great uh, food event? Oh, um, I think it's tricky, you know. I mean, a lot of those kind of festivals are big kind of corporate conglomerates behind it. So I think it does really help because you know, I suppose there is a certain level of access that you are able to get when you can't get when you're a, you know, small-time business. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it takes, you know, especially in Australia, it's really interesting, like I've done some, a bit of work overseas as well in the food space and um, launching into kind of new markets into Asia and things. And Australia is kind of quite unique in that we are actually really at the forefront and really driving, I believe, quite a lot that is happening within that space um, from food events, food and drink events. Um, We are also incredibly oversaturated. So it is really hard to find, I suppose, what is unique and what is going to kind of make you um, be easily identifiable with everything else that is going on. You know, we have more... We have more food and wine events per capita than anywhere else in the world. Wow. Yeah, it's kind of hard to believe, but it's, and I think we do them so well. So, you know, something like taste, for example, I mean, that was, that's been around for a long time. You know, I think it's, it's one of the longest running food festival of its scale um, uh, and in its kind of format. Um, longest running food festivals um, ever and that kind of came from you know out of London and then very quickly grew into you know 26 um, 
events across the world in different places in Europe and Asia and Australia. And I think they were really at the tipping point where no one had really kind of turned a festival into something like they had, where it was this quite cool experience. It was getting very high-end chefs. It was incredibly approachable. It was taking that premium experience into something that was really tangible and really accessible. Um, And, you know, I think even still, like, you know, taste is... It still exists. It doesn't exist, unfortunately, in Australia anymore. And I think that's just a time, of, you know, a sign of kind of the times and and that there was just there is so much going on that you really need to be pushing the boundaries all the time. Um, but to answer your question, I think it, it takes creativity, it takes ingenuity, and I think it really takes um, it's it's very much built on relationships. I think um, because chefs are you know some of the biggest celebrities now in the world and it's kind of weird you know my my partner's a full-time musician and he's like you know chefs get paid more than musicians get paid these (laughs) days um and i think you know from locally just here even you know chefs get asked to do so many things and i think um yeah it's it's cutting through the noise and really offering something that is not only authentic and genuine for the people that are coming but also for the people that you want to be part of it um and yeah i think there are you know only a handful of kind of festivals that have done that that really well but i think you really know if you've got a good product when you actually talk about it to your peers or the people like i said that you want to be part of it chefs psalms um and if they kind of turn away, you know that I suppose, you know, they hear, they hear pictures from everyone. So, you know, if it's a good one, if you've got their ears pricked. You grew up in a, a hospitality family. Can you take us back to the early days, you know, with your um, growing up with food around you all the time? But did that have an influence on the direction that you took later in life? Yeah, it did. And I, I kind of don't think I thought it would but um so my um yes my I grew up definitely in hospitality it's it's in my blood food wine everything is is really being brought in from a very young age probably not wine but um but um yeah my parents um my dad was a practicing architect and my mum was actually in the rag trade she worked for Maryvale and John Hemmings you know years ago Hems I should say Mm. um and uh yeah, they, they kind of, you know, were young and bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and uh, they had bought a place up in, in the Blue Mountains and so were kind of kicking around in, in Sydney wondering what to do. Um, my dad's uh, business partner in architecture had always wanted to own a restaurant, which always sounds kind of hilarious and you roll your eyes when people say that these days. But I think back then in 1975, people were like, yeah, sure, you know, why not? Um and they, so they decided to open a Chinese restaurant and my dad's business partner was um, from Chinese heritage, from descent. And he had always kind of, I suppose, thought that it's quite strange that, you know, when you go to Chinese restaurants, and this is back in the 70s, and I guess it still exists now, but back in the 70s, suburban Chinese restaurants, you know, they'd always have a sign on the window that would say Chinese and Australian food and then, you know, air, air conditioned on the window. And he was like, you know, I mean, from his background of just, you know, Chinese food and what he was brought up with, 
uh, it was nothing like you would get in the restaurants. And so I suppose that's where the idea kind of seeded. And my dad loved it and thought it was such a, a brilliant idea. So they, you know, being architects, um, did a pretty contemporary style Chinese restaurant in Randwick, which actually is still there. It's called Choi's. Um, mm. And uh, so they opened that and uh, was extremely popular. And I think they were kind of overwhelmed with actually how successful it was in its early years. Um and then they proceeded to open uh, Choice, I think it was called Choice 1000 BC, which was in the market. Um, yeah. And, uh, and that was, uh, I suppose, off the back of the success of Choice, but then um, uh, they wanted to create something that, I suppose, looked at what a kitchen would have looked like in 1000 BC. So they wow. kind of, yeah, it kind of sounds a bit more wacky than I think it was a bit bit more um, contemporary than um, than probably what I was imagining but my dad paints a bit of a picture of you know I suppose just going back to you know what was kind of cooking like it was you know in the center of the room it wasn't this kind of you know second kind of space it was very much part of the the family and I suppose you know how a lot of um, uh, people still cook um, you know and so it was bringing that theater into the center of the room it was also about you know creating much more of a communal experience so having you know bench seating they're like one of the first restaurants to do kind of bench seating so it was this really interactive very rich kind of um experience so you know fast forward my my um my parents decided to you know uh, move out of move out of Sydney and, and get back up to the place that they bought in the Blue Mountains and I suppose just couldn't stay away from um restaurants and so there was a beautiful little post office um I grew up in a place called Mount Irvine which is this most incredible place in the Blue Mountains it's very out in the in the rural um area but it's uh, all volcanic soil, so it's this incredibly um, almost rainforest-esque place, and you'd go through this windy road for you know half an hour off the um, off the Bell's Line of Highway, and um, and it is you just kind of enter this world that I've I've never experienced anywhere else. It's it's so magical and and unique. So. Yeah, there was this little post office and it had been shut for a long time and my parents decided to buy it and turn it into a restaurant. And, <laughs> yeah, and, you know, there was a community of, I don't know, like 50 people or something out there, but it became this kind of destination place that people would, you know, come out to and drive out to or bus, you know, buses used to turn up. And my mum is the most incredible person. I think she, is to- she was totally self-taught at that time. Um, she'd been inspired I suppose you know her her background of food was you know meat and three veg and you know um, my dad was saying the other day you know cooking meals because both her parents worked a lot she'd just kind of cook you know meals for herself and but then had this real turning point of meeting my dad and my dad's mum who was I guess pretty uh, out there in terms of her cooking for that time you know in the 60s you know my mum said it was the first time she'd ever eaten garlic um, she wow. had never had lamb's brains before. She'd had, you know, all of these incredible things that my, my nan was making. And that really opened my mind, my mum's mind up. And I suppose that was kind of the progression into uh, opening the eatery up in um, Mount Wilson was just 
she started cooking from the heart and uh, the food was, I mean, you know, I don't remember it, but I was kind of, I was about two, I think, or three when they, when they had that. So actually they'd had uh, my, my sister and I in that time and then had bought the restaurant. So I remember growing up in it. I remember kind of being there and being with my mom and my mom was always making scones, like 50 million scones. <laughs> now she can make them with her eyes closed and, um, and they're the best scones, but, um, and making beautiful, you know, these gorgeous slow cooked lamb pies and things. And, or she used to have this huge dessert table, which had all of these gorgeous tarts with, you know, beautiful glossy strawberries over the top. And I mean, she was, amazing and you know that place was just packed I just remember my my mom was just working crazy Mm. hours and getting there you know waking up at three in the morning and making all the tarts fresh and um of course I found it really boring because you know I'd have to go to the restaurant and just hang out and (laughs) my sister and I used to there was this gorgeous tree out the front so we used to play in that and then and then we used to make prank calls on the local telephone box, you know, to anyone and anyone who would pick up. And then uh, I remember this one time we called, I think we called the, we might have called triple zero. Oh God, I'm telling you the worst stories. But um, <laughs> And uh, and they said that they were sending out a car because they knew where we were and the location that we were and they were sending out a car and I don't think we ever made a prank call again. <laughs> um, but yeah, and so, you know, my mum had that, till we were kind of, uh, you know, I, I don't know, I was probably maybe four or five or something. And then they sold it and those people kind of ran it into the ground. So they, they bought it back again and then, you know, built it back up again. And then from there, my my mum opened a, a catering business and had a catering business there. And that was, um, you know, amazing and, you know, did weddings and events and things all over kind of the Blue Mountains and did even, you know, stuff um, down south of Sydney and um, so built that up into a pretty incredible business and I suppose that's kind of when I really stepped in, um, you know, at kind of 13 or 12 or something and started helping my mum at different functions and Mm. stringing beans and doing all the things you do. Um, And I think at that time I just didn't really think anything of it. I just thought, you know, this is kind of what my mum's doing and it wasn't like I had this light bulb moment, but um, it was very much just part of me growing up. Um, And then, you know, my mum, you know, it's funny now I talk to my my partner about it, but uh, I suppose my lunchboxes were so different to other people's in so far as um, you know, people had their Devon sandwiches. I had like, you know, sliced lamb cutlet or something. And, you know, with this beautiful chutney my mum made and, you know, all, um, I don't know, like roasted capsicums that have been barbecued and whatever. And, you know, and I was like, you know, would roll my eyes when I opened up my sandwich and, you know, I just thought, oh yeah, I, I thought it was normal, but I also just thought it was not that exciting and other people would be <laughs> salivating over, what are you eating? Um, so I think for me, good food had always been around. My mum, you know, was an incredible cook all through me growing up. So for me, it felt like it just the normal, the norm. Um, and then I think it only kind of really started to play a bigger part in my life I moved to Sydney and you know had to find a job and was not really sure what I wanted to really do I'd gone into costume and set design and was kind of doing bits and pieces for theatre and a few short films and um, loved it really loved it 
um, but was kind of, you know, obviously not paying the bills that, that well. So was um, thrown back into hospitality and worked at a bunch of restaurants across Sydney and kind of all the way through really, even into when I started to really find my feet in events. Um, my first events job was working uh, for a catering company and being an event manager there and and then that kind of just spurred on and then just started kind of escalating more and more into the events world, um, which is kind of where I am now. But then I guess, you know, came full circle, started working in kind of more food events, which is, you know, what I've been doing more specialised, I suppose, in the last five years. But, yeah, it's definitely not something I think I would thought I would fall back into, but it's um, I'm so grateful um of my upbringing and my my background and um I yeah I just I would never have thought that it would have come back around this way but I I I love it I wouldn't have it any other way what impact do you think that that environment that you grew up in has had on the way that you approach the food festivals that you do um it's a great question I've never thought about it but I think I would hope, I suppose, of just um, for me kind of I guess that being part of my life for such a long time and, like I said, being kind of almost the norm, I think um, I'd really hope that, you know, some of those experiences I've had around food, my mum cooking, being in the restaurant and things, they're such um, vivid and really cherished memories that I think there's something that food and being um, being in that world I suppose there's just there is so much that um, brings it brings people together all of those kind of cheesy things I suppose people do but or say but I really do think that you know I suppose some of that really has come through in what I do now you know my my company is what I've really loved and probably the most special moments I've created in events have been moments of connection and events that really feel like they're part of the, or they're intrinsically part of the DNA of that place and creating those really rich experiences that, like I said before, I suppose that, that you walk away feeling like you've had this moment, um, and you take something away from that um, more deeply than I just had a great time and, you know, had a few glasses of wine or something. Um, and that would be, I suppose, about telling people stories and that's um, whether that's literally telling somebody's story but also, you know, through the food, um, you know, the producers, the kind of connection back to land, um, just making sure that there is is those kind of layers of detail that maybe people don't even notice. Um, but I think for me, it makes me kind of walk away and feel like I'm doing something with purpose um, and that feel like I'm giving back in some way. You found it challenging uh, pivoting in the event space over the last year, but um, you're back in your element now and you do have an event on this weekend Tell, tell us a bit about the event and what it's felt like pulling something like that together again after this period of time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think kind of, you know, starting the beginning of this year, um, still with not a huge amount of work prospects, um, again, having lots of time to think. Um, I've, 
I recently moved and in recently I mean kind of two and a half years ago but it still feels like I'm kind of we're finding our our happy place up here but it's um we live on the central coast now out of Sydney and that was kind of really out of the fact of feeling a bit burnt out um in events and working really insane hours and just feeling like there wasn't much breathing space and wanting to be a bit closer to my my parents who now who live up here um and really wanting to understand the place I was in um in a deeper way and that was I suppose my time in COVID was really spent doing that um you know meeting producers up here um meeting people in the community and I guess that has really turned into where not necessarily I always will play, but I really feel like there is such an opportunity to create things that are a bit more regionally based because of, you know, everything happens in the city. But I also think there are just some incredible stories that are not being told or have very little um, spotlight and, moving up here really opened my eyes to that in this kind of small bubble of the central coast of just going, wow, this place is amazing and the people are incredible and I want to be able to tell that in some kind of way. And that will come out in, you know, future projects, but that's kind of how this event really came up, um, which is happening this weekend called Natural Element, um, which was really a, me kind of twiddling my thumbs, getting sick of waiting for, you know, work to kind of come my way, wanting to do something about it. And um, I suppose that means, you know, some kind of financial risk. But I I thought, you know, I, I've got to start doing something for my own sanity um, and also start doing things that I really um, value and want to do. So... Um, I called Mike Benny up um, and had a chat to him and just said, look, you know, I want to do something that's a bit more regionally based. Um, Newcastle Food Month um, had just launched at the end of last year and they were wanting kind of pieces as part of that program. And so I said to Mike, you know, do you want to do this with me? And he was like, absolutely. I think he was really keen to do things, you know, in a bit more, I guess, regionally, you know, um, in, in commas, but um, regionally based in, in places like Newcastle. Um, and then, you know, I guess that will kind of lead into hopefully some other bits and pieces that will happen in the future. Um, and I think, you know, the biggest thing that I was kind of talking to him about was, you know, that I suppose there is a nothing that, that um, like this that really happens in those places and spaces there B there is such an important story to be told and a C I suppose in just creating something that is you know especially for somewhere like the Hunter Valley that I guess has a certain um, potentially a certain stigma attached to it and really wanting to kind of create uh, an event and environment that just brings it into a bit more of a contemporary space um, and so that's kind of how it started and um, where we've kind of landed is, I guess, probably more than I thought it would be and I'm, I'm super proud of it and, and so lucky to be working with Mike. Um, we've connected with the Edwards, which is an, a great venue up in Newcastle, um, owned by Chris Stranu. He used to be the ex-bass uh, player of Silverchair, who's just made these incredible spaces, not even the, and not only just the Edwards, but I guess has become a bit of a hospo juggernaut up there of just, yeah, I guess creating very authentic places um, that have a very um, committed community behind them. Um, so 
the three of us have uh, put this event together. It's it's happening on the weekend, and uh, you know, first and foremost, it was about getting the right lineup of uh, producers, and that was you know making sure Mike was really adamant about it being, I guess, a bit of a share of voice. You know, not being. Um, uh, making sure that we had, you know, people across uh, wine, beer and spirits in the house. Um, it's uh, winemakers and, and, and distillers and brewers coming from kind of all over New South Wales into one one place. By no means are we creating, you know, something that is unique as a as an offering as an event. But as I said, I think, you know, having something like this in a place like Newcastle, it just doesn't happen. And with the lineup, I think that we've got, it's, you know, Mike has, has done that curation and I think he's done such a beautiful job of really getting some unsung heroes in there. Um, and then, uh, you know, no good kind of drink event is, is good without food. So, um, we've been working with the Edwards head chef there, Mike, Mike Portley, um, who's come from, uh, Bodega and Porteño and Black Star Pastry and an incredible lineup of places and landed himself in Newcastle. Um, we've been working with him and he's curated the most epic lineup of chefs, um, including Joel Humphreys, who I know you just interviewed, um, and um, Shane Mansfield, who's from um, the Flotilla up there, which is another mm. Chris's, one of Chris's other venues. Um, Remy Tattersall, um, who, again, is a pretty amazing chef and has such an incredible story to tell about how she got back into, uh, how she got into food and um, is up, up at Equium Social, which is a pretty amazing place up in Newcastle. So they've all come together and collaborated on this amazing menu of food that is different on each of the days um, and you can't get the dishes anywhere else. They, they've kind of created them specifically for this event. Um, and they've also, you know, I guess the thing that Mike and I really talked about was really celebrating local producers. So there's all these incredible producers that are attached to that, that they're showcasing in each of the dishes. Um, and and then I think, you know, Mike has um, attached his baller bar, which he's done at a few other um, festivals and things, which I guess adds a bit more of an international layer to it. But he'll be serving up a whole bunch of things that, you can't get, you, you really can't get your hands on. Um, so really incredible drops that um, you you may not see again. Um, so there's, uh, yeah, I can't I can't actually wait to taste some of the things he's got on there. Um, and then he'll be running running a bunch of masterclasses as well, which is I guess talking about you know the contemporary world we live in and where wine has gone and um, well where it is where it is going and in more of that natural world so um, there's a bunch of masterclasses to just I guess a bit of a cheat sheet into how to understand um, those types of wine and orange wines and pet nuts and all of that um, and I feel so proud I think of just what it has hopefully what it's going to start and for not only myself and and we are neighborhood but i think as a relationship piece with newcastle um as well and and those producers to kind of lead into bigger and better things i think in the future has the last year changed the way that you approach uh, creating events and do you think the events industry will be altered because of these um the events of the last year 
Um, I think, yes, they, they will forever be changed. I think in some ways good and in some ways maybe not so good, but I think it's just the world that we live in now. Um, I think that, you know, it's interesting. I, I, I worked at a event, one of the first ones I think to kind of happen out of COVID was a, was a whiskey uh, event down in the rocks and really great little event that they, you know, that this incredible company put on um, off the back of, again, you know, not really having much um, in the books. And, and that was, it was amazing actually to go to that event. And I was really interested to see how people would act and what the kind of, uh, you know, there's so much more that you have to do of s- signing people in. And, and at that time it was, you know, temperature checks and all of these kind of other bizos. But, um, and to get people into an event already, people are a bit on edge and they want to get in and they want to just experience it um, straight off the bat and trying to kind of get them to do all these other steps. I guess I internally had my own kind of concerns around what kind of reaction we would be getting. And then also you couldn't stand at that point. So you had to sit down. Mm. Um, and I was just so blown away by how I think it was the best audience I've ever experienced at an event. People were so patient and so kind and so understanding. And I really hope that that stays um, because I think, you know, people take things for granted so much and, you know, we've had that carpet kind of ripped out from underneath us and I think people are much more grateful and I, I hope that that changes for the better um, and that people really appreciate what it takes to do that and to create that and, um yeah, and I, I, but I think in in terms of, I guess, has it kind of changed the way they do things? Yes, I suppose in terms of uh, whether you can do it or not, but creating richer experiences. I think um, we have such a short amount of time to tell people or or immerse them into an, a world, um, and really wanting them to kind of. Um, to really appreciate that that moment in that in that space in that time and I think I think it's also given me clarity around um I guess who I would who I want to work with and what what kind of events and what things I want to create now I think probably as I've gone on in my career like I've you know done so much of working in the arts and then kind of working a bit more in the culinary space and I guess also uh, selling my soul quite a lot because you just have to in in paying the bills but I think now it has really this time has given me clarity to just understand what direction I want to go in and the types of events I want to create and the importance of them and that um, it's not just about putting on something fun and exciting for people, although that is a massive part of it because, you know, you don't want to get too deep. But, um, you know, people are there to relax and enjoy themselves. But I do think that for me, wanting to walk away and feeling like I've done something with purpose um, and created something that I can feel, you know, hang my hat on and feel really proud of and that it's almost a layer that happens before putting on the events now where it's actually 
going into those places and spaces, understanding what their needs are, what what makes them tick, what is their kind of cultural landscape, and then creating things that respond to that. And I think that has come out of, you know, uh, when I, you know, self-reflection is such a beautiful time because I think you do have the moment to just really sit back and, and assess. But I think, you know, like that has really stemmed from, I think, one of the first events that I did that that really was kind of a pivotal moment was I used to work on um, an incredible festival called Darwin Festival which still exists um, now and is probably by far my favourite festival in Australia Um, it's an arts based festival um, and obviously in in Darwin Um, it is the most phenomenal festival because I think it is a much truer representation of Australia in in terms of cultural landscape, um, people and place. And uh, I was, you know, brought on to just kind of help out on the side and um, had never been to Darwin, never been to Northern Territory, um, met the most amazing people um, and kind of from that uh, they had a an event they used to do which was a dinner in the um, botanic gardens there it was you know 100 people nice dinner you know it's always balmy and it doesn't rain so it was you know very nice sitting out under these gorgeous palm trees Um, they had Jimmy Shu who was you know he did the food Um, and I came up the next year and talked to the artistic director about I guess adapting and evolving that into something that maybe is just less about people paying $150 to sit down and have a nice meal out under the stars. Like, what are those kind of extra layers? And so I pretty much spent, I came up early that year and spent kind of six weeks driving around meeting all of these amazing producers and farmers and people. And it's quite a different experience to do that up there because it's, um, people are well you know it's country and people have so much more time and space and so much Mm -hmm. more to say when you peel back the layers so I you know these amazing moments of talking to you know mango farmers sitting underneath the mango trees with a cup of tea and just (laughs) chewing the fat for a bit because you know you can't get into anything too seriously straight off the bat you've got to kind of build that relationship and I guess what came out of that was far bigger than I suppose what I had originally thought was, you know, just kind of connecting producers, getting, you know, a couple of iconic chefs to come up and, and to kind of create this, this, um, this meal. And that then that would be attached with kind of some talks and inviting those producers to kind of see what had come out of the produce that they had provided. And what kind of came out of that was, I suppose, hearing much more about the front line of what was actually going on for those farmers up there, which is a totally different landscape um, to anywhere else. And and I think, um, you know, talking about the kind of big supermarket conglomerates and the impacts that they have and... um, And so it became, uh, yeah, really... And at that point as well, you know, um, there was, you know, some amazing markets at Rapid Creek markets and things where you can get the most amazing produce that you can't really get anywhere else because of the tropical environment. So you have a lot of Asian produce and tropical fruits. And so the plethora of things that you can get is, is quite incredible on a Saturday and Sunday morning. But I think the kind of education piece around why it's important to buy direct or buy from these farmers markets and things and, um, that buying 
buying from those kind of bigger supermarkets is is so damaging um and that that produce you know from a northern territory perspective all the farmers you know they that gets packed on a truck and it spends it goes all the way around australia and then it comes back to darwin then they unload it and then they put it on the shelves so wow you're not actually seeing the fresh produce that okay yes it's 50 kilometers or maybe it's even further because darwin's a bloody long way 100 kilometers away but you are not actually seeing that in its true form it's been sitting in a refrigerated truck for you know it can be weeks and weeks and weeks before it gets back um and then you're also getting kind of the shitty end you know everybody else kind of gets the good stuff and and they're kind of left with the stuff that lasts maybe you know three or four days once it hits the shelves so I think that was a real turning point for me of just um, going, hang on a second, there is a real disconnection, I suppose, and, and really wanting to, to bring that into the, into the events and, and make sure that, that there is that, that connection. Um, and, you know, with that, you know, we had Duncan um, from Africola, he came up for that one and, and we turned it into a kind of, pop-up restaurants so no one knew where they were going you know they ended in a car park and we just kind of you know had you know you could grab a beer and and have a beer in the car park and um then you know we'd hide or we'd actually we'd worked with this amazing person who had this disused warehouse space who just gave us this space and we turned it into a restaurant for four nights and Duncan did the most amazing food and worked with buffalo and crocodile and all of these things that you know you don't get to really have access to and that was really I guess spurred on to kind of um creating those kind of food moments um yeah well, for those in Newcastle or looking to travel there this weekend, the 17th and 18th, uh, it's on. Where can they get more information? Yeah, absolutely. If you head to um, the Edwards website, so theedwards.com.au, um, or you can just Google natural element, or as most Aussies say, just at natural element. I'm glad you, you said that. it. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you can Google that and it will um, it will come up. But yeah, uh, natural element, uh, it's at the Edwards, 17th, 18th. And yeah, we'd love to see anyone and everyone there that just wants to come on a bit of an adventure um, to really you know, experience something, I suppose, that is, is a bit different and I guess just also just have a bloody good time. <laughs> well, Christy, good luck with the event. Thank you so much for uh, sharing your story on Deep in the Weeds. Uh, stay in touch and uh, we'll talk again soon. Thanks so much, Anthony. Thanks for having me. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we share the stories of Australia's HOSPA community, suppliers and producers in search of hope during this pandemic. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well. <laughs>